in chapter 12. Okay. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you've given us your word. It is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. It is correct. It is helpful. It is truthful in every way. So now we open our hearts to receive your truth, Lord. Holy Spirit, please convince us, persuade us, reveal things to us as we think through together these scriptures. And let there be a response from our hearts to you as you call us to draw near. You always want us to draw near to you rather than just obey you. Though obedience comes from drawing near. Thank you, Father. Amen. So, backtrack a bit. Hebrews 10 kind of closes with the restatement of Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the just shall live by faith. And in fact, that's why one of the reasons why I see uh, Hebrews as being the work of Paul, because Paul's the one who uses that quotation three times in Testament. Chapter 11 then gives us an example Uh, Sorry, it gives us example after example of those who did just that, who lived by faith. But these witnesses, the Greek word is martyrs. The martyr and a witness are the same thing. Whether you're a living witness or one who's died as a witness, you're a martyr. A number of those examples are not at all what those who would popularly talk about faith would want you to present to you. Because they suffered. They were robbed. They were imprisoned for their faith. Hebrews 11 is, the world was not worthy of them. I love that phrase. Hebrews 12 then continues, to perseverance, the call to perseverance, to endure, to run, to fight, to press on, to continue. I'm just looking at a whole heap of young people going out around to their session. I don't know why they didn't use the side door. Let's read it together. I'm going to read it through and talk as we read it through. Okay? It's just the way I am. Okay. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, martyrs, surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or starter and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of, at the throne of God, right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and loose heart. Now, last Sunday, I was away at Epping. Colin was preaching here. So you remember two Sundays ago that you do not grow weary and loose heart. I, I believe that was a, an encouragement to many people, and I thank God for that. That's where we got to two Sundays ago. Eyes on Jesus. Not growing weary, not losing heart. So now we go on to verse 3. You have not resisted to the point of shed, not yet resisted, to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Think about this for a moment. Jesus himself resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, and it happened even before the cross. 
in Gethsemane as he struggled with accepting to himself the weight of the sin and condemnation of the world. He struggled to do it. Do I have to drink this cup? If it's possible, let it pass from me. And he sweat, you've read it, he sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He struggled with sin to the point of shedding blood in Gethsemane and then at Golgotha. These witnesses and martyrs that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, likewise, chose to suffer and even die rather than deny the Lord Jesus. The first readers of this letter, these Hebrew people, the believers, Christian Hebrew people, that Paul is writing to, had not gone there yet. They had not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood. We've not gone there either. Where we are is here. Eyes on Jesus, running with endurance, we are striving against sin. We haven't resisted the point of blood, but we st- we, every one of us is striving against sin. I know I've said these sort of things before, but preachers have to be repetitive. If you are not conscious of being in a battle with sin in your world and even in your own self, then you're almost certainly a casualty already of that battle. As they say in the movies, man down. The Christian life is a war against sin and sin is everything that does not honour God that does not demonstrate faith in him and love for him and for others. Please don't set up your own list of do's and don'ts. That's sin. That's really sinful. That's not so sinful. Measuring sins against sins and yourself against other people. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. The Bible gives us two very big definitions of sin. And I'll come back to these again and again. They're both in Romans 3.23 and 14.23. First of all, sin is everything that falls short of glorifying God but just misses that mark of actually honouring God. Sin is whatever misses that mark. And then secondly, sin is whatever is not faith. If you can't do it in obedience to him and thanking him for doing it, don't do it. Faith is whatever, sin is whatever is not of faith. So in our striving against sin, Paul now quotes Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. As an exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Sons, children of God. Ladies, if I say sons this morning, you're included. Please, got that? All right? I I don't want to try to be politically correct and watch every word I say. You're included. Mark my words. All right? Good. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, this this is Proverbs 3. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Here it is from Proverbs itself. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father corrects the son in whom he delights. I'm so glad the Hebrew doesn't have the word scourge in it, but the Greek version of the Hebrew does have the word scourge in it. Perhaps a little kinder. This also connects back to the end of the years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy, the second reading of the law, at the end of that long, those long decades, Moses reads the law again to the people of Israel and he delivers a sermon. And here's part of the sermon. 
all the commandments that I am commanding you to do to you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart. Now, God didn't need to know what was in their heart. They needed to know what was in their heart. Yes? Whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Let's just run those through again. This is what Moses is saying. God led them. He humbled them. He tested them. He revealed because he wanted to reform what was in their heart. Let me just tell it to you again. God put them in a position so that what was in the heart was revealed so it could be reformed. That's always the purpose of God. He doesn't shine a light into you so you, so you go, now you see what you are. Can we, cheat? Can we deal with this? The Holy Spirit says, here's what it is, let's deal with it. He reveals so that he may reform. He taught them that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he disciplined them, man disciplines his son. We misuse the statement of scripture, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. To excuse our behavior, say, but you know what my heart is like? My dear friend, that's what your heart is like. It's what you do that is what your heart is like. We excuse our deeds, but the Lord sees our deeds. Other scriptures plainly tell us he looks on our deeds and our works and rewards those who do well. Seven letters to seven churches in the first three chapters of Revelation. Jesus says to every one of those churches, I know your deeds. He doesn't say, I know your deeds, but your hearts are good, really. It's not true. Jesus in the Gospels tells us that a a good man does good things from a good heart and an evil man does evil things from an evil heart. Our deeds reveal our hearts. And here in Hebrews we're to understand that the Lord disciplines us as our Father so that our hearts are revealed and may be reformed. So that our deeds become good because they're, they're, they're being spilled out of a good heart. Colin last week talked about the fatherhood of God in God's providence. I come this week to talk to you about our being the children of God. We sang that song earlier, Good, Good Father, and we're going to sing it again at the end because I wanted it part of your thinking. God is our Father if we are in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, He's only your creator, your Father in a very limited sense. But He's your Father because He's, he's begotten you to Himself in Christ Jesus. You've been born of God. You've been regenerated. You've also been adopted. We'll talk about that in a moment. God is our Father, and because He's our Father, He's our instructor and corrector. 
He is raising and training his children. When we think of being children of God, we should not think about being babies. That's not the picture that Scripture presents here. There's a series of Greek words. I'm sorry to bother you with Greek. But in the Bible, you know, in the New Testament, brephos refers to an unborn or newborn child. Nepios to a child without speech. Then paideion is a young child. And then technion is a child under instruction, what we call a school child, a student. And then there's huios, which literally just means son, usually. When the Bible speaks to us as being newborn babies or children without speech and uses those words, it's rebuking us for our immaturity. Being a baby doesn't get a good press in the New Testament. The Word of God says it's time you grow up. You're still like babies. You need to grow up. What Jesus called his own disciples when he called them, if you're in the Gospels, little children, was that word, school children. They were his pupils. He was training them. The language of adoption in the scriptures, again, really doesn't have anything to do with babies and orphanages. It's a man choosing and appointing his son and heir from outside his natural family, if need be. That adopted son could be an adult when he was adopted. And the appointed heir would then be trained and prepared for his role and his inheritance because he was going to inherit from the father. We're adopted as sons. That's the language of it. It's a legal status. It's nothing to do with cuddling a baby. It's about being trained to inherit. So let's get back to Hebrews 12. Scripture addresses his sons and challenges us with these words. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every every son whom he receives. It is a discipline that you endure. You go through stuff. God deals with you as, as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I'm going to use these words interchangeably, discipline, chasten, correct. I like chastens, the old King James Version. God corrects, chastens his children. Therefore, if you remain uncorrected, unchastened, you may not be his child at all. Because whom he loves, he corrects. That's what the scripture here, the inspired word of God, says to us. An undisciplined son is an unloved son. God's discipline is a sign of his love to us, that he's our father, that we're his children. He is faithful in his fatherly correction. As he, as Moses said, leads us, humbles us, tests tests us, reveals and reforms our hearts and our deeds, and as we live by every word that proceeds out of his mouth to us. Let's read on furthermore. We had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. We may have had a good father, a bad father, or little or no fathering. But if God is our Father, he will be actively training and correcting us. Why? Because he is the good, good father. And he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. 
Our earthly fathers may have been mistaken, their their discipline may have been misjudged, but the Lord is, to quote the song we sang earlier, perfect in all of his ways. He will never do anything to his children which is not for their good. Let me explain the word holiness to you. Holiness is not merely a disciplined life, a moral life, a life of self-denial. It's more than death to sin, it's living positively for God. In fact, the best way to describe holiness is this, a Godward life. A life that's lived for God, towards God. There are practices of holiness like prayer and Bible reading and disciplines of grace. But they are the tools we use to pursue a Godward life. That's what the Lord Jesus taught us. Remember, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, do it so God sees you and he'll reward you openly. A Godward life, not for the eyes of others. It's the center of holiness is this, God being the center of your life. A life lived before him and for his pleasure. Now we need to face the reality that we struggle with, or even rather struggle against, holiness. It is not natural to us. We shrug it. There's like a flinch in our guts. Because it is against our human nature. There's a lovely quote I've found from a, a sermon online. This was two headings, actually, wasn't a quote. Sometimes the enemy is the evil in the world, opposed to the people of God. Sometimes the enemy is the evil in me, opposed to the holiness of God. Yet God has saved us out of the world and out of our sin to make us his children so that we may share his holiness, that we may be near him, that we may become more like him as we're changed by degrees to conform to his likeness in Jesus. And Jesus repeatedly spoke of our being the children, sons of God, who are to become more like our Father in mercy and faithfulness. When you forgive... Those who don't deserve it, you're becoming more like your Father in heaven. When you bless those who persecute you, you're becoming more like your Father in heaven. When you do good to people who do bad to you, you're becoming more like your Father in heaven. Did you ever read those verses? You with me? It's demonstrated in our deeds. Now this section of scripture in Hebrews please hear me, is not a stick to beat other people with. But it's a personal insight for every one of us into why we all as Christians endure some things in life. If we're the children of God, he will correct us, direct us for our good to share his holiness. Now let me explore this matter of God correcting his children more practically with you. Because this is what I see in scripture and I've seen in my experience and in the lives of people around me. The discipline of God the Father, first, in communication. He communicates discipline. God speaks to us by Scripture and then by the Holy Spirit, whether that's in ourselves or through others, and we call that prophecy when someone brings a word to us by the Spirit. But prophecy isn't, you know, oh, the Lord, says the Lord. You know. Sometimes it's dropped into a conversation. You just feel you need to say something. To somebody because the Holy Spirit prompts you, that's fine. Many years ago, I mean many years ago, when I was 18. Don't do the maths. Two months. You haven't got long enough. 
I read this in Proverbs and I knew my Father in heaven was speaking to me. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. There have been a number of times in my life when I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, David, do you really want to do this the hard way? Don't you want to listen? The word of the Father is, listen to me. Take note of what I'm saying to you. I want to pour out my spirit on you. I'm going to make my words known to you. By the way, Proverbs is a key book of wisdom in the scripture. If you don't read and consider Proverbs, you will lack wisdom. In Psalm 81, the Lord repeatedly speaks to the people of Israel, please listen to me for your own good. And many of the prophets have the same kind of language in the prophetic books of scriptures. There's a theme throughout the scriptures. Remember, he humbles us and makes us understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. If we would listen and learn, we would save ourselves some pain. But if we won't listen, we must feel. And so the Lord disciplines his children through circumstances. Circumstantial discipline. You remember the Old Testament expression, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord? I, I looked for some things on the... I started to put some images up sometimes, don't I? And there, was, there was this fiery hand coming down from heaven, you know. But whoa, whoa, that's a bit scary. Decided not to go with that one. Do you, how, how many of you know the hand of the Lord can be positive or negative? Could be good news or bad news? Because the hand of the Lord can be with you, the hand of the Lord can be against you. And you find, even in Scripture, the hand of the Lord was upon him. You've got to read on to find whether that was good or bad for that guy at that time. If we won't listen to his voice, we may have to feel his hand. How many of you had a parent who said that sort of thing as well? If you won't listen to the lips, you'll have to listen. Yes, Okay. The hand of the Lord may not be with us as it was. We find our situation changed, challenged. We become restricted, resisted. God will at times use circumstances to correct us and challenge us and call us back to righteousness. I'll talk about righteousness in a minute. There's a little verse in Job I remember this morning. Listen to this. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. I'm hemmed in. I'm resi- I can't get through here. What's he saying? He's saying, God's done that to me. God has changed my circumstances that I'm, I'm now here. I didn't want to be here. I thought I was going to be there, but I'm here. That's how Proverbs 1 continues straight on from that verse I read to you, verse 23, with a warning that if people refused his counsel and chose to follow their own ways, they would end up in a heap of trouble. Now when circumstances come, we can complain about them. Some of them may be consequences of our own sin, and yet some of them are part of God's loving and gracious discipline towards us because we weren't listening, so we're feeling, we're having to feel. When such difficulties hit us, if we're sensible, we'll seek the Lord and ask, as Debbie said earlier, why? And when he speaks, you've got your answer. What do you want to say about this, Lord, to me, to us? 
And the Holy Spirit may well point you to an issue requiring repentance and obedience. And if we will respond, God's providence may soon begin to flow towards us again. But there are other times we endure hardship, which is nothing to do with God's personal dealing with me as an individual, but it's to do with the fact that we are Christians and the world doesn't want us to be Christians. Hardship and hostility comes to us for the gospel and for his name. And that's the central theme of Hebrews. They weren't being disciplined because of something they needed sorting out in them. Particularly, these believers endured persecution for their faith in Jesus. And if it happened, it would work for their good, for their sharing in God's holiness. God is at work for the good of his children, even when they're being oppressed by their enemies. Now that's a hard lesson when we thought about those 12 in northern Zimbabwe earlier, isn't it? Now in all seriousness, I need to tell you that there's a third level or kind of the discipline of God the Father. Because I'm a preacher, it had to begin with C. Corporeal, physical, bodily. What I mean by that is there comes a challenge to our health. Perhaps even leading to early death. Consider this passage from 1 Corinthians with me, please. In giving this instruction, I don't, pra- I don't praise you because you come together, this is for their meetings together, for the better, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That's polite language for they're dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Christian believers in Corinth were coming together to the communion meal, which was then a whole evening meal, you know, plenty of food, wine, bread. And some were eating, overeating and getting drunk while others weren't being given enough food. Besides this, there were 
Other issues among them, such as immorality and gossip and division. Now, all of this was not only dishonoring to the Lord, it was also a lack of love for the saints, which Paul calls not judging the body rightly, not treating fellow Christians as, we sh- as they should. He says that those who despised others while they're scoffing and squaffing at the meal were eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Or sometimes that's translated condemnation, but we need to make a difference between condemnation and judgment. I'll come down in a bit. They were eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Further, Paul then comments that that continued behavior had led to many becoming weak and sick, and some had died. If these believers had judged themselves, dealt with their sin, their hearts, their deeds, they would not so have been judged. But even if a Christian is judged in this way and brought into illness and even early death, it is not final condemnation. Scripture says when we're judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. There's two words there. One is chrisma and the other one is cataclysma. You know the word cataclysm, catastrophic? The big one, isn't it? The cata is big. There's a big judgment which is condemnation, yeah, being damned. And there's smaller judgment, which is being corrected, being chastened. Being corrected, chastened by the Lord, so that you will not be condemned. That's what the scriptures say. The Lord corrects and chastens us to save us from final condemnation, being judged with the unbelieving world. When we're convicted and corrected by the Lord, it is part of his saving us from final condemnation. It's part of his work of grace to keep reshaping our hearts and our deeds. Now earlier in this same letter, Paul deals with a man who is having sex with his father's wife. That is to his stepmother, yes? Here's what Paul says. I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, maybe that should be capitalized for the Holy Spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. This is a really tough verse. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, could be the capital spirit, with the authority of our Lord Jesus... Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Did you catch that? The guy's going to get sick and even die so that he might yet be saved. That's a serious and very strong statement. This man, if he continued in unrepentance, would be destroyed bodily so that his spirit might yet be saved. He would be judged in life rather than face final judgment and condemnation. Now, from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, it seems that that man repented and was restored. You may be relieved to hear that. Christians may come into troubled circumstances or ill health or even come to an early death and it may have nothing to do with this discipline of God. Just part of the other things that happen in life. But sometimes it is so. How do you know? You need to ask him. 
I've known it myself at times. I'm, I'm standing here, I'm not dead. But I have known the hand of the Lord upon me in illness, and I've known why. Am I really being honest with you here? I've known why. And I've known what I needed to do. I've also seen the Lord deal with those in discipline. I've also seen that go as far as an early death. Now, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm setting out what is clearly the teaching of Scripture here. Therefore, the good old book of common prayer, written by good Bible-believing people in the 1600s here in England, says in directing visitation for the sick that the minister is to ask the sick person whether there's anything they wish to confess and repent of before he prays for their healing. And when he prays for them, he's to, he's to, he's to ask for their healing and also ask for their forgiveness for their sins. Now that is wise counsel. It's based on James 5, verse 13 to 16. Totally biblically based. And I'll tell you one instance when that happened to me. I won't go into all the background about it, but I came down with a cough on a Saturday. I was fit. I was a runner in those days. You'd think it now, would you? Um, used to run miles and miles and stuff. And, uh, and I thought, ah, I'm fit. I'm good. And I started to cough. And this cough got a hold of me. I went to church the next morning. And one of the elders there, like a real dear father figure to me, I thought, I'll go and get prayed for and, I, and, I, and I'll, I'll, get to, I'll get him to pray for me. So I stand there and I'm waiting for this dear friend of mine, this dear brother, like a father, elder in the church. And he's about to pray for me. He says, David, is there anything you want to confess? Went, oh, no. He was right. The Holy Spirit tuned him up. I said, yes, there is. It's this. He just smiled at me and said, Lord Jesus, forgive him his sin and heal him now. And I was healed. I was healed. Thoroughly biblical. That does not mean all illness is connected to some sin, but it sometimes is. Therefore, it's a biblical principle to pray for forgiveness as well. There's a progression from communicated chastening from God's word, from his voice speaking to us, to the circumstances correcting us and hemming us in so we get desperate. We, what's happening, Lord? What, please talk to me here. To this bodily corporeal to chastening. But I see it reflected in a number of scriptures, a number of places. And as the Proverbs and Psalms and the prophets tell us again and again, it's a process that depends very much upon how soon we will listen and respond to the Lord. Interestingly, when Jesus talks about discipline amongst the believing people, his church, in Matthew 18, he also gives us three degrees, three stages of discipline and correction, where again and again there's opportunity for repentance and restoration. If your brother hears you, you've won him. But if he will not listen to you in the end, he becomes an outsider. Three degrees, not the singing group, you know. Chastening progresses further only because we have still not yet responded to the Father's correction. He is dealing with us as sons, as children, training us, raising us for our good that we may share in his holiness. 
Verse 11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. What I've just been saying to you, uh, you may not have welcomed. It's maybe not at all what you want to hear. You don't feel it's particularly encouraging, perhaps. But you know, in God's wisdom, his kingdom and his economy, short-term sorrow can produce long-term real joy. So such discipline, correction, chastening is sorrowful in the immediate term. But if we will be trained by it, it will later produce righteousness, peace and joy. Do you notice those three words in that scripture? Now let me talk to you again about righteousness. Righteousness is right relationship with God producing right behavior. A changed lifestyle. A changed source of life and direction of life producing a a new life in us. Peace is then contentment with that right relationship with God. It's the end of my struggle, the end of my rebellion. I can now rest in his love. Yes? God has reconciled himself to us. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be at rest in him. Stop fighting him. Peace. And then joy is the enjoyment of right relationship with God. The enjoyment of his good gifts to me. The enjoyment of the life that he provides to me. Hope and energy springing from a joyful heart to go on facing life with him. Now about this time, as I'm almost finishing, it's about time for some practical application. Well, fortunately, that's exactly what Paul's given us. Hebrews 12, verse 12 to 13. Therefore, practical application. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. This is not a visit to the doctors tomorrow. This is an analogy, yes, of the spiritual reality. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Paul's drawing on Isaiah 35 there. Verse 12, which I've put the two together there, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, is about prayer. They're in a Hebrew language, what you use to pray. You kneel to pray, you raise your hands. That is a typical Hebrew position to pray. Knees down, hands up. Strengthen the feeble knees and the hands. When you are going through something, when you feel it may be the Lord correcting you in some way, drop to your knees. Raise your hands. You don't have to literally do those two things. Pray. That's number one. Sorry, getting ahead of myself. Listen, James 5, verse 13. The passage that talks about confessing your sins when you're being prayed for for healing as well. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. When you're going through something, talk to the Lord about it. If anyone is suffering, let him pray. Let him get God's perspective on this. Tell me what's happening Lord, here, Lord. Are you talking to me about something? Or is this just life? Is this just the way it is at the moment? We saw in Hebrews 11.6 that faith means believing that God exists and it means drawing near to him and seeking him because we know he rewards those who do that. That faith pleases God. We draw near to God and seek God and hear God through simple disciplines of prayer and worship and reading, hearing scripture and fellowship with our fellow Christians. So if you are afflicted in some way, seek God. Seek company. Seek input. Seek advice. Seek help. 
Use the disciplines and means of grace to come near to him. God has always faithfully said, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's his promise. If he has something to say to you, he is ready to do it. You just need to have an open ear and open heart to him. God is constantly speaking. I'm not always listening. That's the truth of it. Verse 13, then, is about obedience. Make straight paths for all your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Make straight paths for your feet. How many of you know that the Bible uses the phrase walk as a way of describing your whole way of life? Your walk, your path, the path you take, your course through life is your walk. We can walk crooked and we can walk lame. When God wants us to walk straight and walk strong. What is crooked needs to be straightened. What is lame needs to be strengthened. The alternative is that what's bad goes from bad to worse. You know, if you've got something ill in your body and you don't get attention to it, you don't do anything about it, it's likely to get worse. The same is true for your Christian life. When something needs fixing and you don't fix it, it ain't going to get better on its own. Having sought him, you need to do what he tells you to do. It's walk it out. Make straight paths for your feet. Now in other places, the psalmist and other people say, Lord, make straight paths for my feet. Well, yes, of course you're asking him for his help and he's equipping to do it. Of course you are. You're not on your own. But nevertheless, the burden of the truth is you need to be doing it. He equips you, but you need to do it. Make straight paths for your feet. That crookedness has got to go. And this limp has got to get strengthened. Lord, I'm, I'm, I need, this needs sorting. This needs sorting. I need to walk stronger. I need to get, let go of, to go back to the beginning of the, of the chapter, the sins which so easily beset me and drag me back. I need to let them go because they're making me limp. If you realize the Lord is correct and you first seek him in prayer, listening for his word to you, then just go and do what he tells you to do. It may well cost you in the short term. It may be difficult and uncomfortable. But the long-term outcome is altogether for your very best interest. So, the word preached enough today, we'll stop there in Hebrews for this week. Let me say again, please do not use these scriptures as a stick with beat, to beat others. I know why that's happening to him. No, you don't. No, you don't. Rather, we should consider this. If God is your heavenly Father, because he loves you, he will correct you. He has your greater good fixed as his goal. He continues to save you even when he's chastening you. Discipline is not a sign of God's displeasure and rejection, but of his fatherly love. And the correction of God is not the condemnation of God. By the way, Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation, is final condemnation. It's cataclysma. It's final condemnation. That doesn't mean God isn't going to deal with me about some stuff along the way. Or that he won't send other people to warn me and challenge me about something along the way. Do you understand? Because I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, 
a school child, I'm a student, I'm a pupil, I need to learn. I need to be corrected. Yeah? Because there's an inheritance we're to enter into. Glorious, eternal inheritance, which we need to be prepared for. And that happens in this life. God corrects us in this life so we will not be condemned in the next. Let me just say this as well that from the scripture. If God did reject someone, like he rejected Saul, for instance, he would abandon them to their own ways. He wouldn't keep on at them, but just leave them be. In the first verse we looked at today, the Holy Spirit through scripture tells us, tells us this too. Do not lightly regard his discipline. You know, for Christians, we make good Greek Stoics. That's a form of philosophy. Well, life's just life, you know, it just happens. You just roll with the flow of things, you know. Stiff up the lip and all that chap. Don't reason it all away or merely stoically accept stuff. Inquire of the Lord. Don't lightly regard his discipline. And the second one is don't faint. You might not faint, but you might give up or run away. How many kids, when their parents are about to discipline them, can't be found? Yes. Where are you? Don't run away. Turn up and say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? Don't lightly regard it. Don't faint. Go to him. Talk to your brothers and sisters. Get help, get input. Get back on track. Thus you are to know in your heart. This is a wonderful scripture. It's just, we're not used to hearing this. You are to know in your heart that the Lord your God disciplines you just as a man disciplines his son. If you're his child, he loves you, he's training you. He will give you positive encouragement and he'll give you feedback. And it's the best way is to listen. Because I've done it the hard way a few times and I don't want to be that dumb again. He still does that if he loves us. And by the way, I'm just going to finish here with two verses from Psalms. Psalm 119. You know the very long one? <laughs> the long psalm? The Bible reading notes breaks it down into like one little stanza at a time. Listen to this wisdom. Biblical wisdom. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted. That I might learn your statutes. This discipline of the Lord is a profound truth in Scripture. It's one of the things that I guess most of us as preachers will be the last thing we ever turn to. But because I'm preaching through the book of the Bible, I have to deal with stuff, don't I? I've got to deal with it. But if we will embrace this issue, that even when I find him hemming in my circumstances or I need to seek him, why is this happening, Lord? He, nevertheless, the Father has my absolute best as his fixed goal. He hasn't diverted from it. He's just, I've wandered away from the path. It was good for me to be afflicted. On the notes I've given you a hymn, I could only find one hymn, one song, 
on this subject. And I've put it on the notes for you. People don't want to sing about this, you know. Even when we sing good, good father, we're not actually thinking that means he's going to discipline me, but it is part of why he's a good, good father. That's part of the deal. Because an uncorrected son, I'm sorry if you're a dad or a mom and you take this to heart, I need to take it to heart too. An uncorrected son is an unloved son. Whom the Lord loves, he corrects. It's a mark of his fatherly love and wisdom. Amen. Let's pray. Then we're going to break bread together. If, you, if you're comfortable breaking bread, having scared you half to death by reading 1 Corinthians 11 earlier. Thank you for scripture James 4, Lord, that says we're, sub- we're to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from us. We're to draw near to God and cleanse our hearts. Lord, we don't want to run from you. We want to run to you. We want to open our hands and our hearts before you. Uh, when something comes to light, that's within us because of our deeds it's because you are constantly seeking to reveal and reform to change us from one degree of glory into another we're being trained to inherit your eternal kingdom with you you're preparing us to be sons and heirs of God with Jesus and like Jesus in that sense Lord we are dealing often with just stupid stuff around us And we need you to help us to keep straight paths for our feet. Some of us too acknowledge, Lord, we need to strengthen the knees and the hands. We need to be more eager to pray and seek you and inquire of you than grumble and complain and do something else. Father, we hear your word. Every word of God is pure and true. You Toward Israel, you teach us to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so today we receive your word from Hebrews 12. And pray that it may feed us, shape us, change the way we perceive some of the things going on in our lives. That we may live with wisdom that produces a wise heart of understanding in us that we can then live from. May Jesus be more honoured by our greater devotion to him, we pray. Amen.